I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. Dr. Adam Fraser. Uh, he's a human performance researcher, a best-selling author, and a good friend of mine. Uh, you know, I- I'm always glad when I see you, Adam, because it means I'm back home in Sydney. Yeah, yeah, and on a beautiful sunny day <laughs> where it's 25 degrees and we should be outside, not in. I thought it was hilarious when you when you sent me a, an email this morning and said, you know, do I have to dress up for this or can I, can I wear my board shorts? Yeah, <laughs> I was wondering whether we were filming or not because I, I literally had thongs on, like flip-flops and boardies, yeah. So for those of you that are listening, you can rest assured uh, Adam is not in his board shorts. He's, he's very well dressed and even arrived in cowboy boots. Yeah, I'm fully clothed. <laughs> so you know, when we were talking before, you told me about some really interesting research you've been doing about the, uh, I guess, the workers of the future and yeah. how to manage them, how to motivate them and what it's going to take to create high performance organizations. Yeah, so my positioning, my differentiator in the marketplace is that I do research. So I do research projects and then talk about them, usually write a book about them and, and have a presentation about it. So we've been doing this uh, cool piece of research where we're looking at, oh, this sounds corny, but kind of what's human 2.0? So if you think about business today, we're rethinking our models, we're rethinking how we interact and the value we bring. So we've been looking at, well, what's the characteristics of the people that thrive in that environment versus the people that fail? Right. And um, so we've been measuring various things, but we we literally looked at 821 people, like leaders who are in complex environments and those environments are changing and evolving. And... If you look at, if you boil it down to a simple concept, what we showed is the key characteristic today is the ability to be uncomfortable but execute. Right. So in other words, the, the competitive advantage today is how you interpret struggle. Just because everyone's struggling today in some aspect, they're having to uh, think differently, unlearn, then relearn. And yeah, so what, what our research showed is how we interpret struggle is critical. And, and we found the people that are executing and nailing it and evolving, but enjoying that, see struggle as a challenge, an opportunity to grow and evolve. Now, they don't enjoy it. It's uncomfortable and it feels uncertain, but they go, if I keep executing and pushing, I'm going to get new skills. The people that failed in these environments, that weren't innovating or progressing, saw that uh, struggle as a threat. You know, I could be showing up or they could find out I don't know what I'm doing. And so their whole world became, how do I avoid this or blame someone else for this? Is struggle something that just happens naturally or does it have to be engineered to some extent by top management? Well, I, I think it's, it happens naturally. And, and, and even some of our research showed that society in general is having a perverse relationship with struggle. We go struggle equals failure or struggles bad. Yeah. So if I'm uncomfortable, that's a bad sign. Whereas the people that are nailing it when struggle equals development. So if I'm getting my ass kicked, I'm getting better. Like I'm gaining skills. So if I'm uncomfortable, that means I'm learning new things. And and what it was all about was this mindset and a focus on, yes, I'm uncomfortable, but that means I'm growing. So their view was struggle equals development. Right. Yeah. There's a bit of a disconnect sometimes with senior leaders because everyone's now focused on how you disrupt your industry, how do you innovate, uh, how do you become more <laughs> agile? <laughs> innovate, like, 
yeah, you and I do lots of briefings and I sat down with a CEO and an executive team and I went, so what, what are you guys all about right now? You know, what's keeping you awake at night, but what's your focus? And, and the CEO's like, oh, innovation. It's all about innovation. <laughs> and I went, cool, what are the exact behaviors you're getting your team to do to innovate? And, um, and he said, oh, oh, we're being more innovative. Yeah, like he, he couldn't actually describe. Everyone's just talking about innovation, but no one's doing the behavior. It, it, it's more of a mantra. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the, it's the thing right now. It's like collaboration. Everyone bangs on about collaboration. But they don't actually look at it very deeply. Do we need to collaborate? What, how do we facilitate that? And yeah, you're right. That disconnection between what I want the business to do and what people are executing on the ground is, is probably bigger than ever before. So with these organizations that are under threat from these new types of organizations that are disrupting their yeah. industries and breaking up their business models, they've probably got struggle built in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so how do you go from that sense uh, of being under attack to empowering people to be more effective. So if you're managing a team, um, what can you do? I mean, there's various things. It's a very big question. I mean, it, it, one is certainly the culture. Do you make it safe to innovate? Do you make it safe to make mistakes? Do you punish people? Yeah, we, we've been doing this other piece of research we're calling Aftershocks, which is looking at there's no such thing as a trivial behavior. Every behavior you exhibit sends this ripple effect through the organization. So for example, I was speaking at a, an event with the CEO of Goldman Sachs. And what, what he was talking about is, he used, he, he's a family man and he used to attend all the kids' carnivals and stuff like that. But he put it in his calendar as a meeting with a made up company. And, and you know, his team's not dumb. They worked out what he was doing, but what he said is that sent this aftershock of, if you spend time with your family, you should be ashamed of it and try and cover it up. Hmm. And it just had this dysfunctional impact on culture. And then he said, when I flipped it and actually put and told people I'm going to John's you know, uh, athletics carnival, it totally changed the culture to, it's all right to actually take time out. It's okay to invest in your family. And yeah, so what we're seeing is that, that, that the behaviors we exhibit as a leader either crush or thrive innovation. So what leaders have to think about is how does their behavior affect people's desire to you know, take a chance, uh, speak out, throw out an idea, be vulnerable? Because without the vulnerability, we're not gonna get the innovation. So first of all, look at yourself as a leader and go, what sort of environment do I create? And do I crush? inadvertently through my micromanagement or my frustration, do I crush innovation or do I make a safe place for it to flourish? So that would be the first one. What organizations have you seen that have a very healthy environment when it comes to uh, people feeling safe? Oh gosh, do you want names or? <laughs> and addresses. Isn't that sad? I, I, I really, I, I'm struggling to think of them because like our desire to control and our desire to, um, I mean, the reason, the reason why I ask is, is that we talk about companies being very innovative, like Amazon, 
Yeah, and yet yeah. Amazon's also a company that's being heavily criticised in the way they manage people. It's very yeah. data-centric, very quantified. Yeah, uh, for sure. And, 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 and many of the organisations that we say are very traditional um, and that need to change often are considered to be great places to work. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just wondering whether it's... Uh, you can't have both. If you're a high-performing organisation that's breaking all the rules, it's just a horrible place to work, but maybe you'll get rich at the end. Uh, <laughs> and if it's a, a very nice place to work, then that, that business is probably not going to be around for another 50 years. Yeah, because they're focusing on being nice. And... Yeah. And, and are these two things mutually exclusive, or is there a kind of a middle path? Look, I think the great... To answer your previous question, I think the great companies today are focusing on progress and evolution. So one of the things we're looking at is how do people handle uncertainty and ambiguity? And and every organization has this desire to control. And you think about government. It's like something goes wrong, what do we do? Truck a, uh, put a boatload of regulation around it. Right. So you look at financial planners who are screwing people over. So what the government is, is when I'm coming in to control this, but they put so much in that they spend most of their time on compliance and, and, and it's just basically squeeze it tighter. And so organizations have this innate desire to control everything. And, and the great organizations I'm seeing are letting go of that control and understanding that they don't have control over um, what's going on. And, and we were talking about uh, this earlier, but I think the ability to handle struggle is to realize that you're powerless a, a, around controlling what's going on around you. So we, we can't control the outcome. And, and too often teams and organizations want the 10 year plan and we can't give them that anymore. I think the analogy actually gave was AA. <laughs> yeah, well, if you look at AA, which is probably the most uh, successful behavior change program in the world, you know, if you look at the first three steps, they're, like their steps actually exist in clusters. And the first one's all about relinquishing control. That I, and, and, and it uses the metaphor of religion, a higher power, that I don't have control over my condition, but what I have control over is what I do today. And it's kind of a weird analogy, but organizations have to look at this of, we can't control the next 10 years, but what are we doing tomorrow? What are we doing this week? Focusing on this small focus of progression. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a focus on mastery. So rather than just... Because if you think about human beings, what they love is a sense of progress. You look at any program that takes at-risk kids that are getting in trouble with the law, what do they do? Is they take them, they get them invested in, in an activity that is challenging but shows them that they're growing and evolving, whether it's boxing, you know, designing a garden, working with animals. So that how they engage them is this sense of doing something that's challenging and fulfilling, but shows them how they're progressing, video games. So, so do you think as human beings, we're actually wired for 
overcoming small challenges. I, I absolutely agree. And when we get almost like a hard we, get, we get a positive endorphin kick every time yeah. we do it. Yeah, I mean, this is why people clean out their email because it's like, well, I didn't get to that big thing, but I did these <laughs> like yeah, yeah I, I know. I, it's almost sadistic this zero inbox uh, behaviour. I mean, I haven't deleted an email for twelve years. <laughs> <laughs> that's Google's problem. They can look after that. Um, but but that's exactly it. Right. What what I think humans come alive when they feel a sense of progress. And uh, so in terms of, I think the great leaders and managers today focus on that mastery of, you know, uh, here's how we got better today. These small little uh, milestones and wins is absolutely critical. This is real gamification, isn't it? Because people talk about gamification as if it's all about points and badges, but it isn't really. It's actually about breaking work up into manageable steps and challenges that people can develop a better mindset around. Yeah, and, and to give you a specific example, we were working with a sales team that um, that uh, use NPS, right? So an interesting uh, measure and... You know, so this is Net Promoter Score. Net Promoter Score, yeah. yeah. So used all over the world. But the problem with Net Promoter Score is the way it was set up is it's not controlled by their behavior. You know, it's more looked at as a group. So I might give a customer an amazing experience, but the guy next to me messes it up and my NPS goes down. Hmm. Plus the other thing is that, you know, they're focusing on strategic NPS and you know, they've got this big goal of, I have to hit this NPS target. And and what I found is, is the team were getting despondent because that was their only measure. Right. And what we started to do was break down uh, the team into a mastery map. So each salesperson had a mastery map, which was they basically went to get to NPS, what are all the little things I think I have to do? Well, I think I've got to ask better questions in the sales meeting. I think I have to get back to customers quicker or I have to engage in customer support. We literally mapped out this map of how they were going to get there, but with these tiny little milestones and they just picked one each week and then reported back, but they had to give evidence of how they'd done it the team totally flipped around. And it was almost like, yeah, NPS is there and we're aiming for it, but the attachment to it was far less. And what they started to focus on was their growth and development. And this team didn't actually hit their NPS target. And there was all sorts of complexity around that. But that team was so engaged, so pumped. And because uh, they, they literally had this step-by-step progress of how they had gotten better and how they had evolved. So, you know, the organizations pick lots of different metrics for challenges. I mean, there's NPS, there's revenue targets, there's yeah, yeah. volume targets. But do you feel like in, in, in the kind of the making up the steps to get to those targets, they're better generated by the teams themselves? Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's not something you could do for them. They must do it themselves. Look, another... Um, addition to this one of the things we found in that study of the the human 2.0 is um we looked at the type of tasks people do and what we found is most people have time pressure so i've got a bunch of tasks to do that i'm quite capable of but i've just got a truckload of them to jam into today so it's stuff that i can do but i just have high volume and what we found is those sorts of tasks drained people disengaged people by the end of the day they just felt wiped but what we found is that the people that are really innovating and evolving gave themselves creative pressure. And that is a task that is challenging and just outside their reach. Right. So it might be I have to solve a problem or redesign a system or 
you know, come up with some like it's it's a creative thing I must come up with as opposed to a, a transactional or process driven yeah. task. So what we found is that when people did those tasks, they came alive. And even though the level of struggle in that is higher cognitively, they just it lit them up. Yeah. And 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 they went and and reported back to the group and went, oh my gosh, we've done this. Like look at what we've done. And, and it just lit them up. And, and what we've started to do is get leaders to insert creative pressure into their team, like once a week or once a fortnight, where they go, I need you to solve this. And you can solve it in your time and, and report back to me. But it just had this profound... So it ties together all the concepts we've been talking about of struggle, you know, that thing that's just outside their reach. Um, but also that sense of progress. And they kept track of these creative things that they'd done. And, and what it became less about is this huge outcome uh, that we're trying to get to. And, and, and it's more that video game of level one, level two, level three, level four. If you're the, the uh, I guess, the top dog in an organization and you're, you're thinking to yourself at an abstract level, we want to be the, you know, the Uber of manufacturing. Yeah. Um, your employees are really not going to make any sense of that. Um, so how do you break things down into, into chunks that allow them to then create smaller goals? Wow. Could is you it, ask it, a harder question? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, is this, is this where you really have to go to your direct reports and go, I mean, it just cascades down. And, you, you know, so that and if, if you've got a big goal at the top, you need to push it down to your... Um, your managers to break it into smaller pieces. Yeah, but it's also... Uh, I don't know whether it's reverse engineering, but one of the biggest... So, okay, here's the story. I was working with a telco and I was with the, the senior leaders, so the executive team and some of the senior managers that report to them. And I'm each of their tables, so they're on round tables, cabaret style. I dump their product, one of their <laughs> products on the table, and I gave them a series of challenges. You've got to do so. You've got to set the phone up. You've got to put the SIM card. You've got to register. <laughs> you've got to create a Gmail account. You didn't really? And you've got to send me an email. They couldn't do it. Like, that could, was quite a gamble. I mean, yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> you, I bet you were delighted when they failed to do it, right? Yeah, and, and spectacularly failed. Right. But then we also, at one part of the day, brought customers in and they sat at the table, and the executive team got to interview them. But what it illustrated, and we literally had to pull these customers out of the the room because they the executive, I want to ask them this question, I want to ask this question. They just learned so much in that day. But what they discovered is the disconnect between, I want to innovate and, and disrupt an industry. There's no way we're going to do that because our systems suck and our people, and it's too hard. Like, I think it's, it's that... It's a lack of visibility as well, isn't it, to the customer experience? Oh, yeah, totally. They, they, the, the, uh, you know, I, I can't remember his name, but I was talking to someone that used to work at Optus in Australia and, and she was saying, so she was head of HR and she was saying that they had a CEO that would come in and, and do the jobs, but like not swan about and look cool, actually answer the phone. So what they started, when they were thinking about changing a system, he would come in and actually sit down and use the system and talk to people and go, what do we have to change here? And there was one time where uh, they launched some new system and him and his whole family came in and took calls and helped. <laughs> and this guy was loved universally yeah. because he actually was in 
the trenches. He he understood what it was like. I, I remember actually growing up. My, my father was in retail, and you know, even though he was the the CEO of the the department store, every single customer complaint he actually rang them back. Oh, that's amazing! <laughs> and he would devote part of his day just yeah, to talking yeah. to angry people. Yeah. Um, but but I think you're right. I, I think it's very easy to disconnect yourself from the customer experience. Mm. And and this is the thing. Like all these sexy words like innovation and disruption and all these, you know, it, it's about well, what are the behaviors attached to that? Because yeah. we get inside our head. And I think, yeah, you know, one of the biggest challenges we talk in intangible nouns and abstractions, but we don't actually talk what does that translate into behavior on the ground? Well, in some ways, we embrace them because. They don't really delineate a specific action. Yeah, we're not accountable <laughs> for them. I, oh my god, I was doing this. Um, so I, I use this behavior change model, and one of them is the first step is what's the exact behavior. So most people go when they're trying to get healthy, go I'll eat better and move more, but that's not a behavior. No. So it's about getting down into well, you know, I'll go to the gym at six a.m. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and same thing. People talk about I'm going to communicate with my team better. That's such a big abstract thing, but what does that look like? And I had a bunch of HR, like senior HR people in a room, and and I said, you know, what's a change you want to see in your teams? And and they all wrote it down and started complaining about why they don't have this change. And and uh, and then I said, okay, what are the exact behaviours those people must do to get that change? And they just couldn't come up with them. They wrote stuff like they've got to get on board, they've got to be more engaged, <laughs> they've got to be a team player. How does that work? So I, I think the big translation, whether we're talking about innovation, collaboration, disruption, like what what does that look like on the ground? What are the behaviors? And most executives have no idea about how we would do that. Hmm. Yeah. The, the consequences of, of not giving people enough struggle uh, are quite clear. And, and one of the things that really fascinated me was not just your work with organizations, but you were, you were recently in Kuwait as well. Yeah. <laughs> so um, how, how do you go to actually helping a country think about, about struggling? Yeah, how this came about is I spoke at the Dalai Lama conference, the happiness conference, and two things <clears> happened. <throat> one is I, I met one of my heroes, Ed Diener, and I was talking to him, like he, he's considered the father of happiness, like brilliant researcher. And I said, Ed, mate, you've been studying happiness for 37 years. Like what have you learned about happiness? And, um, and he said, you know, what I've learned is happiness is counterintuitive. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, most people think happiness is lying in a hammock with a cocktail in their hand. He said, that's called pleasure. You know, you should do it, but it's not <laughs> happiness. And he said, what we've discovered is human beings are happiest and most alive when they have a challenge that's just outside their reach, but they must stretch themselves to meet that. Mm. And, and in all my presentations, I asked the the audience to come up with the thing they're most proud of. Like in their whole life, what are they most proud of? And the two rules are, you can't use your kids and it has to be socially acceptable, whatever you come up with. <laughs> but you know, what always comes out is the hardest thing they've ever faced. Right. Like yesterday, I was with a bunch of real estate agents. This woman's from Africa goes, I came to Australia, married a guy, had some kids, he was abusive. I walked out. I lived in my car for weeks. Couldn't get social support. Got a job as a real estate agent. Borrowed a suit. Went out there. You know, like amazing. You know, other people were talking about moving from a different country or paying off their mortgage. But what we... When, when we are asked what we're proud of, like no one says, 
you know, I watch TV like a legend. You know, it's always the hard stuff that we get in the trenches and fight it out. So first of all, I started to look at happiness as I think it became dysfunctional. This movement has become dysfunctional because it's about hedonistic. When we think of happiness, we think about cruising, no stress, pleasurable emotions. But the research is telling us we're most alive when we have struggle that we overcome. Now, how the Kuwait thing came about is I got a phone call uh, from a woman with this thick Arabic accent. She said, I saw you present in Melbourne. We want you to come to Kuwait to form a team of people to make the country happier. <laughs> I was like, one, is this a prank call? And, and after a while, I, I just went, wow, what an opportunity. So I've been going to Kuwait for the last three years to work on this project. But their biggest challenge is they don't have enough struggle. In what way? Look, the, it's too easy. They've got too much money. Right. So it's really hard to, to get a straight... They're a very different culture. But, you know, if, because of the Iraq war... I mean, God, you travel more than any human being on the planet. But you think about an airport sets the tone for a country. Like they invest in the airport because it's the first thing oh, you see. Oh, it's so true. Like you think about Dubai or, or Hong Kong. I was actually thinking about Harare Airport, actually, which looks like a separate 1960s James yeah, Bond yeah. film. <laughs> this is true. But you land in Kuwait and you go, what the hell? Like it's like a third world country almost. Oh, that's their, surprising. Their airport is terrible. But they're one of the richest countries on the planet. So their view is, during the Iraq war, they blew lots of stuff up. So let's not invest in infrastructure if it happens again. But that means that the government created, like they've got all this money lying around. Right. So uh, I can't, I, it's hard to get an exact answer, but around four years ago, the government went, what should we do with all this money? And they said, well, let's just pay off everyone's debt. And they did. Now the average person's going, bring that on. But what it removed was struggle and challenge. And the Kuwaiti people, are, they're beautiful. I love them. I'm going back in April and I right. can't wait. Like I just, I love them. And, um, but they're becoming lazy and entitled. And I talk to 21 year olds and I go, why don't you start a business? Or why don't you do this? And they're like, why would I do that? I've got four Maseratis. You know, I'll just cruise around and have fun. So their challenge is there's not enough struggle for them. And do you have a sense of how at a national level you almost artificially create struggle? I mean, this is, but the challenge with this project is they're so comfortable, the desire to change is not great enough. Right. But I mean, what I'm trying to do is in the 60s, those guys got in the trenches and like fought it out and made yeah. themselves an amazing country. And we're trying to go back to that or celebrate that history, but, but also celebrate because they're a very, you know, my status is about what do I have and was I at the opening of this and was I seen at that cool cafe? That's their kind of metric of success. And we're trying to add in another one of, well, metric is about what have you overcome? What have you created? How have you grown? There's definitely an analogy with traditional organizations here because like a wealthy country, they're they're market leaders, uh, everyone's very well paid. They've lost that sense of of needing to struggle to become number one. Yeah. and they, I guess, face a similar challenge of how do you recreate that energy and um, passion and creativity that was present at the birth of their company? Yeah. And, and, and you think about most bands, the first album's always the best. You know, because that's when they're hungry and, and engaged and then they become really successful and they've got all this money. And, and, and then they're, they're just the Stones and they're touring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or they're U2. And, they're, but, and, and you look at most rich families, the third generation's a disaster. Hmm. 
because they haven't had to work for it. And so what, what we're looking at is this totally different view of what makes life worth living or what makes us happy. And it is evolution and it's getting back to that progress. And, and here's interesting. I, I went and talked to a couple of people in Bhutan because they've got the gross national... Uh, the happiest place in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. They measure happiness. That's their key indicator. And then economic is second. And I was talking to some people going, this really makes me uncomfortable because it feels like you guys aren't striving or 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 aiming for that. Like, you, you don't sound very... God, what's the word? Um, uh, aspirational. Right. And, and he's like, oh my gosh, you've got it so wrong. We're incredibly aspirational. So what about? He goes, well, our progress is about did I become a better citizen today? How did I give back to my community? What kind of a father was I today? So they have this amazing pride in progress and evolution, but it just happens to be about human connection. And at a smaller scale. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, um, so I think that the, the organizations of the future is about letting go of control, but focusing on progress and evolution, creating environments that are safe for people to fail and be vulnerable and put their hand up and go, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. I need help. Um, I think that's where people are headed because I think people are tired of being scared and afraid and, and controlled. And um, yeah, hopefully we get there. Adam, it's been great to see you and as always, great to have you on the show. My pleasure. <laughs> Thanks very much. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.